I recognize that voice. I know that voice. That never happens. That never happens to us. That would never happen. <clears throat> All right. Jeff, would you shut that door for me back there, bro? Thank you. All right, we're going to climb in. I hope to give Morris uh, the last 10, 15 minutes tonight so he can catch y'all up on some things that he saw in Kazakhstan that God is uh, doing that we can be praying about as a people. And uh, so I'm going to hopefully have that time for him. So we're going to need to climb right into the Word. Let me begin with prayer. Lord, we appreciate our time together tonight. Uh, we recognize that there's no such thing as routine or mundane when we're stepping into the Word. I just pray that you'll give us a, a glimpse of your movement and your covenant and how you interact with your people and how you initiate covenant and how you follow it through. And I pray that we are encouraged, that we are um, amazed, uh, that we are satisfied, more satisfied in you after tonight than we were before. And uh, maybe that we even understand ourselves better. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, let me read chapter 17 completely. And then we'll just have a couple brief intro notes. And then we'll climb right into it. Genesis chapter 17. <clears throat> when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you. And may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As far as you, you shall keep my, or as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall circumcise in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an, ever, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? 
shall Sarah, who is 90, 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring, for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at the time, this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. And then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house are bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was ninety-nine years old when he, when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was thirteen years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Okay, just for the sake of context, did we have a good chapter last chapter? Did, did, did Abe have a good chapter? Was it a good period of time in his life? You remember the context? Basically, he and Sarai, Abram and Sarai are trying to kind of engineer God's faith, trying to kind of fulfill the promise that God has made him through their own design. Hagar, you go in there and lay with my husband. Hagar turns on Sarai, and then Sarai rip, rips Abram's head off. It wasn't a great chapter, and if you're paying attention, if you're like me, I'm sitting here thinking, man, Abe, you're going to get it. You know, if the story unfolds the way it seems like it ought to, if we didn't have a graceful, merciful God, chapter 17 would be pretty brutal. But chapter 17 will be a testimony to a graceful, long-suffering, patient God. He, in fact, in this chapter, this chapter that if you're kind of making up your own story, you'd be hammering him. God is actually renewing his promise to Abram in this chapter. Now, given Abe's chapter where he and Sarai went off to Egypt, given what happened in this chapter previously that we're talking about just now, it's going to be interesting to see how Abraham or Abe or Abram, that at this first part of this chapter, responds to what God says to him. So we'll have to watch him and see how he responds and see what he does. Uh, there's a couple things that you're going to see in this chapter, too, is you're going to see people getting new names, and God included. He doesn't get a new name. He's always had that, those, the names that he has, but he'll be introducing himself as a new name. So you'll meet a new name for God, a new name for Abram, and a new name for Sarai. And we'll even talk about, as we go, what those mean, and then at the end we'll talk about the significance of a new name. Let's start with verse 1 and 2. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Now, I was going to share these thoughts for the kind of context, but as we're kind of starting to watch Abram really close here in these next couple verses, I want to just kind of remind you of the climate and context of what's going on with Abram. And Sarai. Okay, basically what's happened, by this point, Ishmael is 13 years old. So they have a 13-year-old reminder of how they've tried to engineer their own God's will. 
This Ishmael has eaten at their table, I guess, probably for 13 years. Sarai has had a constant reminder of this thing that she tried to engineer. Abram has had this constant reminder, not only because he's watching Ishmael run around, but also because Sarai is probably still beating him to death over the whole thing. It's your fault, Abram, remember? <laughs> and Abram's sitting there saying, I thought this was your idea. I'm betting that by this point, 13 years into this, that Abram's pretty raw at even the topic of a baby. Even the notion by this point. So we're going to have to watch and see if we can try and kind of glean what Abram's thinking, what's on his heart, what's on his mind as this chapter unfolds. I encourage you to look at Abram through the eyes of how you might look at a friend who's made of the same stuff. There's the temptation to look back 5,000 years, whatever this would have been, four or 5,000 years by now, and think of this guy as some, something different from us. But he's made of the same stuff you and I are made of. And he's going to have those same temptations and those same tendencies. And as I'm reading the dynamics, I'm just sitting here thinking, by this point, man, it's a long time ago by this point that God made me that promise. I believed him. I left where I was to go to a land that he would show me. I fought kings. I've gone through a famine, made some bad decisions, went off to Egypt. Lord preserved my family. But he promised me a baby, and I'm looking around, I don't see this baby. So the whole topic by this point would likely be pretty raw. Okay. In these first couple of verses, I told you that you're going to meet some new names. You're going to, or people are going to have some new names. First of all, God is introduced with a new name. And that name, if you see some notes in the bottom of your Bible, what name is that? El Shaddai. Anybody know what El Shaddai means? You can use your translation. That What does your translation call God there in the first couple of verses? God Almighty. Okay. Does anybody else have another translation for that? An NIV or Bill? King James? What does King James say? Bill. What does King James say there for God Almighty? Does he call him God Almighty? Okay. All right. Okay. Uh, there we go. A little, little different there. Almighty God. And King James going crazy on us. All right. Here's what that means. Here's what El Shaddai means. El Shaddai means the powerful, strong one. Okay? It also means, and this is this little definition I love, the one who suffices. That's kind of an understatement. But it's kind of good, though. The one who suffices. When you think about that, you're like, yeah, indeed. He is sufficient. He's completely sufficient in all things. So the one who suffices, I like that. The point in his being named here or presenting himself as God Almighty, El Shaddai, is that God is able. What he's going to be telling Abram, and as he changes his name to Abraham, what he's communicating, recommunicating here, is that he is going to, he's going to establish that he can make the barren fertile. No other God can do that. He's going to take people that are good, as good as dead and give them a little bitty old crying baby. Okay, God is, is able to make the barren fertile. He's also able to make good on his promises. This God who suffices is the powerful, strong one. He's the God Almighty, the Almighty God, the El Shaddai. He's going to follow through on these promises that he's making, but he's going to do it in his time. Not on their terms, on God's terms. As I think about the 13 years that they had to walk, watch Ishmael eating at their table, walking around the house or the tent, whatever they're living in, 
kicking up dirt, playing kick the can out in the yard. While they've got 13 years, I thought, man, that's probably kind of like the 400 years in Egypt where Israel's saying, God, where are you? I know you made a promise to our forefather. Where are you? Or it might be like Mary and Martha when they called for Jesus, when Lazarus was sick, nearly dead, and they called for one that they knew loved Lazarus, and they said, hey, come to his rescue. He says, no, nah, I think I'm going to wait another four days. <laughs> I'm going to wait till he dies. I'm going to wait till it's about as dark as it could possibly be. And I'm sitting here thinking, 13 years. That's pretty dark at this point. And they're wondering where in the world and when in the world is God going to show up. But God's going to follow through in his promises in his time. Okay, a couple things that he commands Abe to do here in these first couple of verses. What's in, in the first verse, the uh, first command is to walk before me, and the second is to be blameless. Walking is an idiom. Y'all know what idioms are? Kind of sayings? It's a Hebrew idiom. I've, I came in contact with how often we use idioms when we went to Kazakhstan. And we're trying to talk with people that are from another culture, and you're using your idioms. Um, I can't even think, what, put the pedal to the metal, you know, things like that. And they're going, huh? What the, I just don't, you know. Idiot. This is a, a Hebrew sort of idiom of the picture of faithfulness that it's a walk. And you can just hear as steps are clicking off that that's the picture of faithfulness. And he's saying, walk before me. To walk before God means to orient everything in him. And those steps, like a beat of a metronome, just think of everything in your life. Your job, your marriage, your kids, your drive to work, who you share a cubicle with, who you work with in the warehouse. Add it all in there. It's all dedicated to him. Let God invade every single space. That's the picture of faithfulness. To live before God so that every step is taken in reverence to, reverence, and in reference to God. Like, should we do this? I don't know. What would God think on this? Let's seek his face on this. Should we do that? Okay, it seems a little cumbersome, a little inefficient. <laughs> if, I, if me and the other elders have learned anything about church done rightly, I think it's really inefficient. The kingdom of God is not about efficiency. It's not a business. And it's cumbersome and it's slow, but it's about relationship. Because you walk with people. Walking's not efficient either. <laughs> but that's the picture of faithfulness. We're not about efficiency. We're about faithfulness. And faithfulness is done slowly and carefully. Every step in reference to and in reverence to God. That's, I think, how you would define the fear of the Lord. That wisdom, the fear of the Lord, is kind of slow. Like three miles an hour. Walking pace. He also told him, he said, be blameless. Anybody know what blameless means? I'm going to quiz you on our Noah study because blame, blame, uh, Noah was described as blameless. Remember what blameless means? Does it mean without sin? No, it does not mean without sin. It means undivided. All there. Jim Elliott said, if you're going to be someplace, be all there. That's a good little description, good picture of blamelessness. It means, and you know, I was thinking about it. If, if somebody really puts in a good effort, and maybe they're not a great athlete, but they put in a great effort and they fail, you know, your thought is, well, can, you, can you blame the guy? Man, he was all there. He just didn't have the goods. His heart was all in it, but he didn't have the physical ability 
to follow through on the task. That's the picture of blamelessness, is that to be blameless before God does not mean that you're sinless. It means that you are undivided and all there. So there's no room for dabbling in God when you're blameless. Hopefully, people would describe you, or that should be your goal in life. Man, I want to be blameless for His glory. In other words, all there. Am I the best speaker in the world? Am I the best, I don't know, technician in the world? Am I the best runner in the world? I mean, all these things that we may not be. But by, by, in, by every single one of us, whatever we're about, we can be all there. And what we should be is all there in Christ. And this picture that God, what God charged Abram with is to walk before me and be blameless, wholly devoted, hopelessly devoted to you. That's right. The word there would be the word integrity. You know what I'm talking about when I say integrity? I like to drive my old Land Cruiser. Because that thing is like this big, solid piece of machinery. It just fits together. And I know when something's not right because it kind of has a little vibration. that Something's wrong there. But when that, that thing has integrity, it's like, it's solid. That's the picture of blamelessness. My old Land Cruiser. Okay, so all you have to do is look at that and you'll know. Okay. Now he says here, he says, uh, his charge is, I'm, I'm God Almighty, El Shaddai. Um, walk before me and be blameless that I may make. Okay, that phrase there, that I may make, actually is better translated, that I may give. That I may give a covenant to you. The thing that I want you to appreciate there is that God initiates covenant. And he gives it as a, as a gift. We don't go find God. God finds us. He initiates covenant, thankfully. And we've got pictures of that, that he came to seek and save the lost. He didn't say, it doesn't say he came to seek and rally up with the found. <laughs> he came to seek and save the lost, and he's, a, he's out searching for lost sheep. That's the picture that he initiates, and he gives this covenant as a gift. Hey, that's so important. This covenant is a gift, not earned. Responded to appropriately, but not earned. We can't, guarantee, we can't earn this gift, otherwise it's not a gift. Then it's just a payment for what, for what we deserve and what we rate. While Abe is charged with obedience, God gracefully, like a gift, administers and sustains the covenant. Okay, God's driving. It's a very lopsided transaction, this covenant, where he's at the helm. Okay. Now, this covenant is going to be introduced in three phases. Before we continue, we're going to look at verse 3 here in a second and then on into the rest of the chapter, but... I want to introduce you to kind of the bird's eye view of these phases or sections of the covenant. They're broken up into three. The first one is chapter 17, verses 4 through 8. And God starts this section out with, in the ESV it says, Behold, in the New American Standard, I think the NIV does this too, I don't know. But I know the New American Standard does this. It says, As for me. Does anybody have the New American Standard? Okay, it says, As for me. That's a good way for God's section to start because down in verse 19 it says, as for you, Abraham. And then down in verse 15 is the third section, as for Sarai. So there's three parties in this thing. God, Abraham, and Sarai. As for me, being El Shaddai. As for you, Abram. 
and as for you, Sarai. Okay, that's kind of the headings and the three directions, trajectories of this covenant. Okay? It's a partnership, but a very unequal one. Okay, verse 3. Abram fell on his face. Just a brief thought that that's appropriate worship when God shows up. (laughs) You know, if y'all are spending time together as a family over the Word, and you have an occasion to do that, where you're like, man, that is just a rich truth, and it would be just very appropriate for us to be on our face. We've done that a handful of times as a family, and I'll never forget hearing people speak while their voices are muffled because their head is against the floor. And my kids, no big deal for them. So we should probably do it a whole lot more often than we do. (laughs) Just to where it's more familiar. Because that's probably what we're going to be doing a lot in eternity. Seeing as how the 24 regal elders spend so much time on their faces. I expect that we're going to be doing a lot of it. Have bruised foreheads. Okay, then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Okay, remember, this is the first section where kind of the preface is, as for me. This is the part that I'm going to play in this thing. This is God's end of the deal. First of all, he changes Abe's name or Abe, from Abram to Abraham. Abram means Ab. Anybody have any idea what Ab might point to? Don't, I know you. Good, yeah. yeah. Some of y'all might be looking in your notes down at the bottom of the Bible cheating and stuff, but I, I, I bet Christy didn't cheat. You didn't cheat, did you? But you're the pastor's wife, you're supposed to know everything. You just know it all. No, Abba Father, that's a good, A-B, Ab, points to Father. Ram means to be high. Okay, so the picture here for Abram is exalted father. Okay, but his name is changed to Abrahim. Ab means father, and Ham is kind of the root of the second part of that, means crowd. So from exalted father to father of a crowd, (laughs) which is kind of cool because it means father of a multitude. His name is now changed. You're going to be the father of many nations. Kings will come from you. I'm going to change your name to fit with what that means. Now whether Abraham the Ra is kind of a continuing on of high, high father, the father of a high crowd, I don't know. But I know that it's a pretty good firm picture that it's at least the father of a multitude, Abham. Okay, he's the father of a multitude of nations in two ways. Biologically, first of all, you're going to see that all over the development of the rest of the book of Genesis. That he is, in fact, the father, physical father of these nations that come about. You also see whenever uh, genealogies are mentioned in the New Testament, referring to Christ genealogies, they begin, many of them begin, or some, at least the one in Matthew, which is a very Jewish book, begins with who? Abraham. He's the biological father of many nations, but he's also the spiritual father of many nations. Kind of keep your finger in Genesis there and look over at Romans chapter 4. 
That's how we can sing this song, Father Abraham. That's not just the Jew's song, that's our song too. Had many sons? Many sons have Father Abraham, that song? Brad Cardwell knows that song well. He sings it all the time. (laughs) Romans chapter 4, verse 16. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Who's Paul writing to? The church at where? Is this just a Jewish church? No, man, it's Jew and Gentile church, and they're all mixed in there. The father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That's a great picture of Isaac being born. You hear that last part? Who gives life to the dead. Abe and Sarah is as good as dead. But he calls into existence the things that do not exist, namely Isaac. Okay, but this picture here, he's biological and spiritual father. He's the father of kings. This is probably pointing to him being the father of Israel's kings. But he's also the father of what other king? Huh? The king of kings and lord of lords. That being Christ. Revelation chapter 19 verse 16. points to the kingship of Christ. The rider on a white horse, that is not just some dude on a white horse, that is Christ coming back. Verse 16, it says, On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Okay, so Christ is the Alpha King, the ultimate king, and he came from Abram also. Okay, the everlasting covenant. There's a couple times here in this, these, these verses that I read. Verse, we're back in Genesis now. Verse 7 and verse 8, that the everlasting-ish, everlasting nature of this covenant is emphasized with this word. And I think that's worth considering that His and covenants endure forever. They're not like our covenants. How long do our covenants last? What are some covenants? Let me start with that question. What are some covenants that we participate in? Marriage, okay, that's one. What else? Have I ever bought a piece of property or anything like that? It's sort of a covenant. They have like deeds and you hear those old kind of old-timey sort of words for these land deeds, uh, property exchanges or boundary lines and covenants and easements. Those, those sort of words sound familiar. Now, how long does a marriage covenant last? Till death do us part. Right? What about uh, covenants that have to do with like land, land covenants? How long do those last? Think about it. Huh? Or until some, uh, how about if somebody don't pay their taxes? Does the land covenant end? <laughs> I think so. What if a sovereign takes over your country and says, beat it? I think the land covenant's kind of null and void. I think it's over with. Or you can sell the property, and the land covenant ends. So see, the human covenants have an ending. Our covenants, while important and, I mean, robust, they're not everlasting, like this covenant. 
God's covenants are everlasting. His covenants are based on His eternal nature and the fact that He doesn't die, the fact that He doesn't change His mind, thankfully, the fact that He won't sell us off or sell us out should get us excited about the fact that we're in covenant. It's a done deal for all time, an everlasting covenant. Man, we can enjoy that eternal nature of a covenant with God. It is a done deal. And His emphasis in this covenant, in that part there in verse 8, for an everlasting possession, He says, I will be their God. Back in verse 7, He emphasizes it too as He says, I will establish My covenant between Me and you and your offspring after you through their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you. I will be their God and I will be God to you. This is the marrow of This is like the kernel, the meat of the covenant, that God will be their God. I have to admit, as I was studying that and I was reading that, I was like, okay, yeah, God will be their God, okay. Let me go to the next point. Then it it hit me, I was arrested with the reality. That is an illustration of the sermon that we had two weeks ago over there at GHS, where God is the treasure. That's why this is the treasure of the covenant, that God will be your God. What? You mean we get the treasure of a relationship with the living God, El Shaddai? That's awesome. We become his possession? That's, now, that's, that's the sweetness of the covenant right there. And God becomes, and God is the treasure of that. To actually be a possession of and protected by the super able almighty El Shaddai God is a treasure. Okay? Verse 9, and God said to Abraham, now he's Abraham from this point on. I've been tired of calling him Abram. Oh, and we're almost done with calling Sarai, Sarai too. He says, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you. Okay, remember we just finished the as for me. This is God's part of the deal. Now here, Abraham, here's your part of the deal. You shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money. Those are going to be key phrases right there in a minute. They're easy to just read over, but just get ready. Shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who's not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He's broken my covenant. Okay, first I want to start with the keeping of my covenant. That verse eight or verse nine there says, "As for you, Abraham, you shall keep my covenant." The word "keep" means to watch and to guard. Does that word sound familiar? Of any other place we've seen that word? In these last seventeen chapters, sixteen actually. Any place in the last sixteen chapters? No. We're on chapter 17, so it... Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Work and keep 
the garden. Tend to the garden. Keep the garden. Watch it and guard it. How do you tend to? How do you watch and guard a garden? What are some things you do? Just throw it out there. Okay, kill the bad stuff. All right. <laughs> Good. That went right for the jugular there. Good. What else do you do? Okay. All right. Fertilizer. Stuff like that. All right. You tend, you plant, you weed. That's a little version this side of killing the snake. You actually prune. Good. Uh, you water. You make sure stuff doesn't get in it. Put a fence around it so the rabbits don't get in there and eat all the good food or the fruit of it. A garden takes tending. It takes some attention to. So to have that sort of guarding and keeping relationship with a covenant, how do you do that with a covenant? Throw it out there. Can we use all the same words? Maybe not kill the snake. Maybe not plant the good stuff. We just tend to. We have, we're attentive to it. Yeah. That's good. That's a good image. Right. That's a great image. That The marriage plane does not fly on autopilot. If a husband will ever learn one thing, or if he learns that, he's well on his way to tending to the garden of his wife and caring for her like a, like a garden. Right. Right. There's something in view. It's not just for his enjoyment. That's right. That's a good point. There's a perpetuation of it. So you're planting bulbs, which I have to tell you, last Sunday felt like a big fat bulb for me. And Brad came up to me afterwards. He knew, I was, he knew I was kind of down. He said, hey, man, we're building an ark. Building an ark is not, it's not real sexy. But when it starts raining, man, you're glad that you built it. <laughs> it's not like, oh, how exciting. You're building an ark? Oh, man. And there's another church in town that has like a month-long sermon series on sex. And I th- the whole time I'm preaching, I'm thinking, man, we're building an ark. I wasn't thinking this, but I thought about this afterwards. <laughs> We're building an ark, and they're talking about sex. Golly. We're praying for other churches in town, but uh, it was, that was a, we're planting bulbs. But I think those bulbs are going to bloom soon because I'm excited about what's coming up the next couple of Sundays when you see the servant role of Christ from the throne room. Then when you move back down to ground level, everything's different. The landscape, everything's different. And then the very practical things of now you go serve. They have so much more oomph. <laughs> I mean, before, they don't, just don't have that. But now, I'm excited about that. Okay, he, said, he, he takes them to a place, or Abraham, he says that every male among you shall be circumcised. This picture of circumcision is that it's a physical mark that has to do with being set apart. You as a people are being set apart. And, you know, it's just a graphic thing. I mean, to talk about it, I can't not deal with at least, just at least one thought. This, and I'm not going to be rude or raw or anything, but the actual organ of procreation is consecrated. I mean, you pre- it is a very raw image. And 
I think it's a picture of what it means to follow him and be set apart. It's a pretty abrupt, maybe even painful transition. And it's, it's, uh, it's just not a, the kind of thing that you would naturally go pursue, but it's something that when you see the treasure of what's in store, then, it, then it's a more natural transition. The Jews really, really embraced this thing of um, circumcision. It's, for them, was a very tangible sign of the Old Covenant. I think the reason that the Jews embraced it so much is because it's easy to put that check in that block. I got my circumcision. I've done what i got to do. And we like that, don't we? In fact, when Jesus walked across the Sea of Galilee, got to the other side, all these people that he fed the day before followed him around there, and he's like, what are you doing here? Your tummy's led you here. You're just here for more food. And he said, you need to work for the food that lasts into eternal life. And they're like, okay, what are the works of God that we must do then? What are the blocks that we must check? That's our nature. We ex- well, yeah, exactly. We're not real bright. We're not going to go beyond. Let me see the big picture here naturally. So we like to check in the box. How often do I have to come to church? I mean, that's the sort of mindset that would, you know, <laughs> if I come every time the doors are open, am I in? Does that work? What do we have to do to do the work, the works of God? And how did he respond to this that? He said, there is but one work of God to believe on him whom he has sent. Ooh, but believing, I don't see a real tidy box there. You know, it's like this organism thing that is kind of living and scary and hard and daily. (laughs) You know, circumcision is, ma'am, it's over. You're smarting for a while, but then it's done. Believing is daily. And it's, it's living, and it's, it's hard. So I think the Jews really loved it because it was so tangible and so easy to, to just kind of get done. Much of Paul's ministry, I think, was prying the Jews, the believing Jews, away from circumcision. The whole book of Galatians is, a, Galatians is, a, is an occasional letter. I mean, it was written because of a certain issue. And that issue was that these guys called the Judaizers had snuck into the body there and they were saying grace plus circumcision. Which, when you add something to grace, it's no longer grace. It's like trying to add something to an egg. I mean, it's still an egg. Every illustration breaks down at some point. But a whole egg. Trying to add something to a whole egg and... It's done. That's what happens to grace. You don't add anything to it. And Paul was like, man, I'm hoping the knife slips for these guys and that they actually injure themselves with their circumcision teaching because it, it, he was that aggressive against it. It's not grace plus anything. It's grace, period. So he's prying Jews away from that for his, nearly his whole ministry. Just a couple of, go ahead. Yeah. It almost became a God, a little G God. You know, we can deify anything. We can. We can deify any practice. The time that you spend as a family and shepherding in the mornings, that can become a God to us. It, something that, I, that hit me through, actually, uh, I heard John Piper talking about this at one point, that we can love... You know, just this last, a couple Sundays ago, all the vehicles 
We can love the vehicles that take us to God more than we love God. I shared this thought with the elders because that Pipe, John Piper mentioned this in a sermon. I just, it took a while for it to really find a home. But another Asian, you remember the Asians and the Omens, another Asian is proclamation. I can love the teaching and preaching of the Word more than I love the God of the Word. I love, and I shared with the elders, I love seeing lights go on. And I love seeing people attentive. And I love seeing those aha moments where people go, oh, I got that. I can love that more than I love God. <laughs> you think, I mean, that's possible. It just shows you how, how fragile we are, how easily enticed we are to take something that's good, like the sign of this covenant, circumcision, and to distort it and twist it to where it actually becomes almost a God. Okay, did you get circumcised? We can do that with the aisle. Southern Baptists may have done that with the aisle. Did you make the trip down the aisle? Okay, at least you're saved. What, what is that? I don't know what that is. We can deify the aisle. We can deify the baptism pool. I, and I, when, I, when we talk about baptism with folks, man, I'm teaching them. You, this is not a saving event. I, I point back. Not everybody knows that our baptism pool is back here. <laughs> They're like, man, why does he always point back there? Is that the place? They have the neighbors do it? Now, we, the, our baptisms kind of go and flow, ebbs and flows, and we just hadn't had one in a while. But when, when we do, you know that they're right back here. That's why I always point back there when I'm talking about it. That's the, it's not grace plus baptism. It's grace. This is a symbol of what's taking place. So for them, circumcision was a symbol of this old covenant. So I just kind of led to the next question. What's our version of circumcision? baptism yeah but also in some ways the lord's supper because you're identifying yourself as the people of god you're participating in a corporate thing and when someone's baptized baptism is not a private event it is a public proclamation of what god has done in the gospel and how he's drawn you and arrested you with the gospel so it's that should not be done in a bathtub <laughs> I think we're going to do that privately. It, man, just by nature, it's a public sort of thing. Identity as the people of God. And the Lord's Supper is another picture of that. Um, okay, let's talk about this. Just this little thought in here about eight days old. That the baby must be eight days old. Something this allows for is just a couple of passages here. If you just want to look up. They're really not pivotal, pivot, pivotal passages, but... Exodus 22.30 and Leviticus 22.27 point to, they're having to deal with critters that you can sacrifice this animal here or you can put this work, this animal to work here on the eighth day. Or they can be about something beginning on the eighth day. And there's kind of this picture that, and that coupled with this, don't circumcise until the eighth day, it's almost like it's allowing for the creative week. Let's make sure he's fully made. You know, the creation cycle is seven days, so it's almost like it's giving a, almost a, a I don't know, a honor and appreciation to our Creator that you made the earth and everything in it, so we're going to give you a week here, but we're not going to put that animal to the altar. We're not going to put that foreskin to the knife. We're not going to put that critter to the plow. And that's not really a good picture, because you're not going to put an eight-day-old oxen behind the plow, but... 
Morris. That's interesting. Huh. They must have some cauterizing or something like that now because when Daniel and Luke were born, it was like that day. Wow. How about that? Back in action. Now, something that's interesting, too, regarding circumcision is some other cultures do circumcision, non-Jewish cultures, when, when it, like a boy is moving from boyhood to manhood, like when he's going through puberty, it's kind of his rite of passage into manhood. And uh, something that's different about this, God's people are circumcised as infants in many ways to show that the dedication to God is a lifelong thing. It's not this marital commitment. You know, that in, you know okay, you're moving into marriage, okay, let's have you circumcised. It's a lifelong commitment toward God. And um, so that's why the Jews' circumcision is quite unique. Okay, now this phrase in here that I, I mentioned that I, I just want to kind of draw out because I think it's, to me, one of the most treasured passages in this um, thing that we've studied tonight or treasured sections here is having to do with the bought and the born, whoever's born in your house. It says both he, in verse 13, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So this picture is that even if they're not Jewish by birth, that they're brought into the covenant, and this circumcision being a symbol of that. And as I thought about that, even if they're born in the house, kind of almost this picture of adoption, um, almost if they're, they're kind of uh, brought in as slaves and they're born into the household and they're circumcised, or if they're bought, actually purchased, and I thought about these pictures. The covenant promises are extending even to the bought. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says you were bought with a price. They extend to even those who are grafted in. Romans chapter 11 talks about the, the Gentiles being grafted into the tree or the olive tree or the vine. And that's us. And even those who have been adopted. Ephesians chapter 5, we have been adopted into this family. So whether we're bought or born in the house or whether we're grafted in, that we're still brought into the covenant in an equal footing. It's just, just a remarkable grace. Okay, he ends that section there with this statement that the uns- uncircumcised will be cut off if they will not, if they refuse to be circumcised. That's sort of a play on words there. That if you're unwilling to submit to this cutting away and cleaving to God, then you'll be cut off. So it's almost like you, will, you are in some ways becoming um, as outcast as the foreskin. Which I know is kind of a raw picture, but if you refuse God's covenant, then it's as if you're becoming almost anathema. So that's a pretty raw picture, but it's, it's right there. I'm glad there aren't any kids in here tonight. I'd be embarrassed. Okay, verse 15. Let's go 15 through 27. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. 
Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? You just almost hear him murmuring. Shall Sarah, who's ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. And then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in his house are bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Okay, Sarai's name was changed to Sarah. We don't know a whole lot here about the name Meaning, we do know that both names are associated with princesses, plural of princess. Okay, so that's appropriate that her name is has something to do with a princess since she's going to give birth to what? Kings. Okay, that's appropriate for a princess. Okay, now let's talk about Abraham here for a minute. What's going on with Abraham? He fell down, remember in verse 3, where he fell down and worshipped? I called your attention to that as being appropriate, you know, posture of worship. He's on his face. Remember the bruised forehead thing? Okay, he fell out, fell down again here. What do you think is going on there? You think it's worship? I think he's hiding something. The fact that he laughed and considering what he said to himself, that he didn't want God to see that. I mean, we don't know exactly what's going on there, but I can imagine that he's dealing with probably what I would call exasperation. Okay, God, (laughs) this is getting comical. I don't know that it was that overt, because actually there's some passages in Romans that say that it was not faithless. He was not faithless, that his faith did not waver. So we may be seeing some things here that we don't understand, but maybe he laughed in complete faith knowing that God is able But God, when are you going to follow through on this? Are you kidding me? This again. And the way he responds specifically, I think, gives us some clues. He laughed and said to himself the content of verse 17. Shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Oh, are you kidding me? Shall Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? I think he's laughing to himself, and then he's offering up Ishmael. Ishmael, can we just make do with Ishmael? I'm kind of tired of us dealing with his promise. I know that Ishmael's not the guy, but can we just make do with Ishmael? This is so difficult. It's killing Sarah. Oh, Sarai. Oh, yeah, Sarah. You know, probably took, took him a little while to get a hang of that. This is killing me. Can we just move on and deal with 
Ishmael. Can he take the blessing? Go ahead. He may have, and that laugh may have been, <laughs> what about Ishmael? This seems the tone of it, though, what he's saying to himself. You know, it's hard to say. It's hard to say exactly what's going on there. I think that the thing with Ishmael was so tainted, it'd be hard to believe that it was God's will. Sarah had ripping his head off for 13 years, and, you know, it just kind of damaged goods. It, but interestingly, Isaac, in fitting with Abraham's response there, his name means, do y'all know? He laughs. He laughs. Daniel was this close to being Isaac. We, we laughed about it today. And Daniel said, when I grow up, Daniel was on the couch with Christy. He said, when I grow up, if God gives me, when I'm a dad, if I have a, find a mom and she lays a baby, <laughs> she lays a baby, I'll name him Isaac, you know, he's like Isaac. Yeah, he was saying Isaac. It's funny, man. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like there would be a pretty Sarah centric. But he may have lied to himself. He may have been kind of talking himself into this. Hey, you know, it's Sarah's idea. Yeah. I know. I know. We're looking over the, through 5,000 years and, you know, the, the word, just trying to kind of get glimpses of it. We can trust to know that his faith didn't waver. But anyway, Isaac's name was, he laughs. And uh, it's appropriate because Sarah laughed. In, or she will laugh. We'll see her laugh in verse 18, or chapter 18, verse 12. And then when the baby's born, she laughs for joy. Which is just so appropriate. That this boy is just a picture of joy. And, and, uh... Okay, how, how does Abraham respond to God's instruction? There's that little phrase here that's mentioned twice in that last section that I think gives us a glimpse of Abraham's. And I emphasized it that very day. You know, let me chew on this a while. Let me, talk, let me pray about this, God, see if I'm going to follow through on it. <laughs> He's like, get me the flint knife, and the men are running. What is Abraham up to? Oh, I think I got a doctor's appointment, Abraham. I, no, I'm going to be your doctor. Come here. Give me that flint knife. Every man in the house, it's time for pre-op. That very day. That's a great picture of obedience. Man. First time obedience, what we're trying to teach our kids. Just a couple of closing thoughts. First of all, covenant. The only appropriate response to God's covenant is to walk before Him and to be blameless. Now, there's the potential to read that whole thing the way it unfolded there as conditional. That God's covenant will follow through if He walks before Him and if He's blameless. What we've got to appreciate is that no man can walk perfectly before God and no man is perfectly undivided in heart before God. There was only one true God walker who was perfectly 
wholehearted and blameless and undivided. And that was Christ. So we walk um, before God blameless, blamelessly in so much as we walk with and in whom? Christ. So it's not conditional. Because if it was conditional, then that's basically saying that if we're a good person, then we will be saved. If we walk before God in this manner, and if we are blameless, then we'll be saved. The way to understand this walking before God and being blameless is that this is like wool on a sheep. Walking before God and being blameless is just sheepish. It's just what sheep do. It doesn't make them a sheep. It's just what sheep grow. So while it's not something that comes naturally, there's, there's definitely hard work in this involved or hard work involved in this. But you've got to appreciate that your salvation will never be based on your performance, not one iota. It was based on the finished work, the finished performance of another, and that being our Christ. Okay? Ultimately, the only true blameless walker was Christ, and we live, and as we live and abide in Him, we are reckoned blameless walkers too. Okay? The last thought, God initiating covenant with Abraham or Abram and Sarai and giving them new names is a great picture of the gospel. He finds us like he found them. He initiates. He rescues us. He adopts us. He gives us a new name and we're made new creatures with a whole new humanity and a whole new identity and a new name is appropriate. Okay? Morris, I didn't leave you much time. Do you want to do it next Wednesday? You want to just share a few thoughts? If you've got kids and you're a, a couple, if you're by yourself, you may need to grab your kids. But if it's husband and wife together, maybe you can just grab the kids and we can let Morris share a few thoughts.